This is a message that emerged this morning. Uh, it didn't just emerge this morning. It emerged last night when I was laying in bed uh, reading and praying. And there's every once in a while God has me give a message that's a little beyond where I'm at. Uh, that, that's it's not an accurate way of saying it, maybe. But this message is deeper than I am. And it's, you know, we're all in a different place as we're sort of entering an ocean, the ocean of God's grace, his majesty, his truth. And we sort of enter up to our ankles and we feel like we're very deep, uh, especially when we look around us, we compare ourselves with all the people that are still in the sand. But we're up to our ankles and then we're up to our knees and then we're up to our waist. And this is a message that's beyond where I'm at, where I feel like God's pushing me. And I sort of like having uh, something under my feet. I don't like that free-floating type of feeling into the ocean waters. And uh, this message sort of pushes me there. And he's been doing this in my life for quite some time. But this is probably just another step in that direction. I'm going to do some odd things in this message. One is I'm going to read a chapter out of a book. Doesn't that sound like a, a unique thing for me to do? And it's not one of my books, by the way. It is a book that all the students are currently reading. Uh, And so before I do that, because this chapter has uh, great significance on what we're going to talk about today, and it's had a great impact on our school, this particular chapter. And so I call this message the heavenly place, Uh, but I want to introduce you to a Greek word, eporenios. It means the throne room, the heavenly place where God dwells, heaven, the heavenly temple, the sanctuary. This is one amazing place. And typically when we hear the word heaven or the name heaven, we have some far off concepts, you know, a cloud, you know, maybe a few people with harps. It's not a very real place to us. It doesn't have a lot of connectivity to our life at the moment. And so we have a tendency to put heaven out there somewhere. Heaven is where God dwells. Now that's going to be a funny statement because some of you could say that have good theology would say, no, doesn't God dwell in us? Well, that's part of the great mystery. Heaven is the abode of God. And so for you to become the abode of God, for you to become the house of God, it is important that you are where he is. So we have talked in the past in regard to a concept that we could term in Christ, significance of the blood of Jesus Christ, that what Christ has done on that cross is no small matter. And most of us have truncated our understanding of the gospel to be merely a forgiveness of sin. Which is, by the way, a wonderful thing. The fact that Jesus Christ and his blood shed is a propitiation for our sins. Or an atonement for our sins. That he took upon himself the punishment that was due us is an extraordinary reality. However, there is more to the cross than a mere covering or a mere cleansing of sin, it is also a clothing. Jesus Christ in his blood is like an armor, and we've talked about this 
many times over the past weeks that there is something in Isaiah 61 known as the robe of righteousness. I've oftentimes referred to it as the cloak of righteousness. It's clothing. It's actual armament that we stick upon ourselves. We enter into Christ through faith. And this is what most of us, when we came to Christ, we didn't fully understand what we were doing, but we reached out in the little we did understand. We need Jesus. But the important thing about building a framework of understanding about what Jesus Christ did on the cross that's accurate and full is that you know exactly what happened to you. When you came to Jesus, you need to realize that you entered in and that you were clothed. You were wrapped in his blood and it was like a clothing and it still is like a clothing because there is no merit of your own that can ever win you access into the Epiranios. You cannot get here. This is an impossible place, and it will never be stained by the flesh of man, by the sinful state of man. We cannot enter in. There is a problem with us, if you haven't figured that out about yourself, and that is that you are not as you ought to be. There is a warping and a twisting within men, and it's known as sin. It is a rebellion against God. There is a throne room in your life. And you are squarely seated on that throne. And therefore, everything that flows out of your life, since you are the principal character in your life, is messed up. It misses the mark, as it says in the Greek. In other words, like an archer pulling back an arrow and shooting it, you can't hit the way you are supposed to hit. There is something you're supposed to be. You are supposed to be likened unto God, have a nature like God. God created you in his image. He had an intention for you to showcase in and through men who he was. To demonstrate to this earth the nature, the character, the almighty person of God himself. But there's a twisting. We believed the lie. We ate of the fruit. We have taken on a disposition that is other than God. And as a result, there's a separation from us and God. And so when Jesus Christ came... He broke down the partition. He broke down the barrier, that veil that stood between us and his presence. He removed it, but he removed it in and of himself. He is the one that can enter. He enters by means of his own blood. And so the only way for us to enter is to get in him. He is the one that can access the throne room. And so we must be in him. And so belief in Jesus Christ or faith in Jesus Christ is taking what Christ is and what Christ has done and saying, I need you. I need you to wrap yourself around me. I need you to be my righteousness because I can't be as I ought to be. But can I have you? Because you are as you ought to be. And can I have you wrap me so that when I come near the throne room, the Father can say, come on in. Come into my presence. Because he's seen the righteousness of Christ when he looks at us. That is the great, amazing work of a cross. That Christ died for us and gave us the opportunity to enter into his life. And we are able to access this throne room and this heavenly place. Many of us, in our Christian walk, take off that that cloak. We access the throne room of grace and then go right back out and say, you know what? I want to prove to God that he made a good choice in choosing me. And so I'm going to show this earth what Christ looks like. Of course, not God's way. We, we do it our way. And so we labor and we work and we, we try and whip up a righteousness and show God that, no, we are as we ought to be now. Thank you for getting me started. You cannot 
ever muster up the righteousness that would be required of you to enter into this place. You see, what happens is Christ clothes us. And that clothing is needed for all time. To get into heaven when it's all said and done and you die, don't come to that throne or that gate of the the great celestial city and when they say, what is your means of entrance, and claim your own good deeds, your own good works, your good attitude. You know, this one time when you were hit, you know, on one cheek, you turned to them the other also. Don't make the appeal based on your perfection because it will still fall short. You need that cloak to enter in. That's the only way to enter in now. It's the only way to enter in tomorrow. It's the only way to enter in in days to come. But here's what I want you to realize. That cloak provides you the opportunity to access this throne room. And in this throne room is the fullness of grace. And in this throne room is Christ himself. And you enter into Christ for a very specific reason. And that is so that you can get into that throne room and that he can get inside of you. The purpose of the cross is not to just get you in. It's to get him inside of you. Because then underneath that cloak, there is a work that's taking place. And yes, it is not finished, maybe this side of heaven. But it is progressing constantly. And there is more and more of Jesus Christ that is being manifested and grown and evidenced within your existence. You still need the cloak on the outside because if you remove it, you have no merit to get in. That's the only way you can maintain this, is constant dependency upon his righteousness. But underneath his cloak is a very real righteousness of Christ being formed in you. And you're becoming more and more the way you ought to be. Suddenly, the very love of Christ is being evidenced. Suddenly, there's joy. It's the joy of heaven. There's peace. And you are being corrected according to a pattern as shown in the mount. You are taking on the disposition of heaven in greater and ever-increasing degree, and it's called maturity, sanctification. It's the process of being made holy as he is holy, being perfected as he is perfected. Typically, Christians emphasize one or the other. They emphasize either the outer cloak to the, to the, uh, to the loss of the fact that God wants to change us and has any purpose for shaping us into his likeness. Or we have the emphasis that we need to be holy as he is holy and we keep the cloak in the closet down the hall. And neither one works without the other. You are brought into that throne room, that heavenly place, so that he can enter into you. You come into Christ so that Christ can come into you. You come into Christ so that you can access all the benefit of that cross inside of you. And it's an amazing mystery. It's called the mystery of godliness. It's known as the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You see, the church of Jesus Christ is hallmarked by God as his means and his vehicle to bring the glory of God to bear upon this earth. And as I said in our introduction today, that is a very strange and bewildering plan. But we must understand our position. The more and more we discredit What God has done on that tree, the less we have expectation that he has any design to change us. What is the church supposed to be? That's what this message is about. What is the church supposed to be? It is supposed to be triumphant. It is supposed to be a picture of heaven come to this earth. And I realize we can snicker within at such a notion. But all I say is, what does God say? If God's intent is that we would be pictures of triumph, marching on the gates of hell and they cannot stand against us, well then guess what? 
We must raise the bar of our expectations to match God's and not measure ourselves based on what we've experienced in this generation. Because we look around ourselves in the modern church and guess what? We don't look too strong. We don't, we don't evidence triumph. What needs to take place within us to get us in alignment with Scripture again? That's all I care about. God, bring us, bend us to your word. We don't want to try and bend your word to our experience, but we want to be bent to your word. I'm going to basically spend the entire time in Ephesians today, with exception of one scripture, okay? So I'm going to, and it's basically Ephesians 1 through 3, which is an incredible enunciation of the gospel. The gospel is evidence in the fruit of the gospel, and the power of the cross is evidence in the individual life and in the corporate life of the church. It is powerful stuff. Just read Ephesians 1 through 3. I am going to camp on four specific verses that all use the same word, which is a word that you are now getting more familiar with as you're staring at it. You could probably pronounce it better than I can because the only time I see the pronunciation is when I turn around. You could at least study it. But it's about the throne room, the heavenly place, where God dwells, heaven, the heavenly temple sanctuary. So the first one is in Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in Let me get the pronunciation. Eperanios. In Eperanios in Christ. Now, typically the translation would be in, heavenly, in the heavenly places. He has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies in Christ. There is a purchase that was accomplished on the cross, and it's realized where he lives. It is very real in heaven. There is no mistaking the purchase of the cross in heaven. No one's wondering and looking around going, are we sure that the Bible is accurate? Everyone sees it clearly. It is accomplished. It is seen without blur, without veil, without compromise. It is accomplished. This is the first use of Eperanios. Which he wrought, you can almost read this like a paragraph, even though there, you'll see there's 17 verses in between that one and this one. Which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in Eperanios, in the heavenly place. And hath raised us, this is a strange one, okay, brace yourself. And has raised us, speaking of those who believe, the church of Jesus Christ, up together and made us sit together in Eperanios in Christ Jesus. I'm not sure about you, but when I think about where I live, you know, and I would say, well, Windsor, Colorado. And where do you sit, Eric? Uh, I sit, depends, if, you know, if I sit down at uh, the college, you know, it's usually in my office. You know, if I sit down at house, there's this nice chair in my kitchen I really like to sit in. And imagine someone saying, no, I sit in heavenly places with Jesus Christ. What? What are you talking about? How does that work? To the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in Eperanios might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. We are to demonstrate, the church is to demonstrate in this same heavenly place the realities of who God is. The manifold wisdom of God is supposed to be demonstrated in and through the church. Now most of us could chuckle at such a notion. It's like, did Paul actually know what he was talking about? I mean, was he a little disturbed when he was writing that and he thought it was the Spirit of God, but he was just sort of waxing eloquent? This is what the church is supposed to demonstrate in this same heavenly place. 
oh, that is what I was looking for. This wasn't in my notes. I asked Sandy to put it in here. Okay, uh, there's a quote at Ellerslie. Uh, I had a young man named Nick that stopped me the other day. And I I can't give it exactly, but Nick said something like this. I'm, I'm sure the rest of the book is great, Eric. But I'm stuck in chapter five. And so chapter 5, because of that one quote by Nick, then I heard uh, Steve Rosen, he was praying the other day, and he talked about the fact that we all need what is in chapter 5. So chapter 5 has become a theme in and its own, uh, and so you have no idea, those of you that haven't read the book, and those of you that have read the book, Reese Howell's Intercessor, you're thinking, chapter 5, what was chapter 5? Well, I'm going to read you chapter 5. Again, I know, it's a strange thing to read a chapter in a church service, because the chapter, you read little quotes in a church service. You don't read a whole chapter. Well, you haven't, you know, hung around me then. I read, it, I read Ezekiel 1 through 3 in one of my teachings. Ezekiel 1 through 3. I just have everyone sit there, and we read Ezekiel 1 through 3, one of the most confusing passages in the Bible, and I give no reprieve. I just keep reading. So this is a very engaging thing compared to Ezekiel 1 through 3, okay? Chapter 5. On his return from America, Reese had settled down again in the old family home where he had received a great welcome. Instead of returning to the tin mill like several of his brothers, however, he now found employment in a neighboring mine about a mile away in the valley, working under the, at the, underground at the coal face, the hardest job of all. His spare time was spent in the activities of the revival. This is speaking of the Welsh revival that was taking place in Wales, Okay. So his spare time was spent in the activities of the revival, but the sense of spiritual need was growing among the workers. And in 1906, a large party decided to spend their summer holiday week seeking the Lord in a special way at the Landonrod Wells Convention, the counterpart in Wales of the English Keswick Convention for the deepening of spiritual life. One of the things we've oftentimes said about Ellerslie is that our desire is to be built into a modern-day Keswick Convention. And so that statement is very significant to us. For Reese Howells, this was to be, after his new birth, the most revolutionary event in his life. Shortly before they were due to go, Reese was in a meeting at Brenneman, where a young woman read Romans 8, 26 through 30. She could only read very slowly, which gave time for each word to sink in. Predestinated. Justified. Glorified. As Reese listened, he said to himself, I know I'm predestinated according to the foreknowledge of God, and justified but am I glorified? That puzzled him, and the question was constantly in his mind. What does it mean to be glorified? Two days later, in the train on the way to Landonrod, with this thought still before him, a voice spoke to him. When you return, you will be a new man. But I am a new man, he protested. No, came the answer. You are a child. The others in the carriage were singing the newest song of the revival, the glory song. But Reese never heard it. Instead, he kept pacing the corridor with that voice ringing in his ears. You will be a new man. On the first morning of the convention, the preacher, who was perhaps the greatest expositor on the life and the spirit that Keswick has produced, the Reverend Evan Hopkins, spoke on Ephesians 2, 1 through 6. You hath he quickened, and hath raised us up, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, he pointed out. That it was the risen Lord who had appeared to the disciples after the resurrection, but when the Holy Ghost came down, he revealed the exalted Savior at the right hand of the Father, Mr. Hopkins then asked the question, have you been quickened by Christ? Have you been raised up to sit with him in heavenly places? In his heart, Reese answered, yes, I know I've been quickened, but I've not been raised up with Christ to that place of power. 
And the moment he said that, he saw the glorified Lord. As really as I had seen the crucified Christ and the risen Christ, I saw the glorified Christ. And the same voice I had heard in the train said to me, would you like to sit there with him? There is a place for you. I saw myself raised up with him. I knew, not, I knew now what it meant to be glorified. I saw him as John did on Patmos, and I was dazzled like the Apostle Paul. When he reveals a thing, it is exactly as it is. It is not imagination. All that night, I was in the presence of God and my glorified Savior. There was nothing in nature refined enough to describe it. I saw men as trees walking. The next morning, Mr. Hopkins spoke about the Holy Spirit. He made it plain that he is a person, with all the faculties of a person, exactly like the Savior. He has intelligence, love, and a will of his own. And as a person, before he comes to live in a man, he must be given full possession of his body. As he spoke, Reese said, the Holy Ghost appeared to me, and I knew him to be the one who had spoken to me the day before, and shown me that place of splendor and glory into which natural eyes can never look. It never dawned on me before that the Holy Ghost was a person exactly like the Savior and that he must come and dwell in flesh and blood. In fact, the church knows more about the Savior who was only on the earth 33 years than about the Holy Ghost who has been here 2,000 years. I had only thought of him as an influence coming on meetings and that was what most of us in the revival thought. I had never seen that he must live in bodies as the Savior lived in his on earth. The meeting with the Holy Ghost was just as real to Reese Howells as his meeting with the Savior those years before. I saw him as a person apart from flesh and blood, and he said to me, As the Savior had a body, so I dwell in the cleansed temple of the believer. I am a person. I am God, and I have come to ask you to give your body to me that I may work through it. I need a body for my temple, but it must belong to me without reserve. For two persons with different wills can never live in the same body. Will you give me yours? But if I come in, I come as God, and you must go out. I shall not mix myself with yourself. He made it very plain to me that he would never share my life. I saw the honor he gave me in offering to indwell me. But there were many things very dear to me, and I knew he wouldn't keep one of them. The change he would make was very clear. It meant every bit of my fallen nature was to go to the cross, and he would bring in his own life and his own nature. It was unconditional surrender. From the meeting, Reese went out into a field where he cried his heart out because, as he said, I had received a sentence of death, as really as a prisoner in the dock. I had lived in my body for 26 years, and could I easily give it up? Who could give his life up to another in an hour? Why does a man struggle when death comes, if it is easy to die? I knew that the only place fit for the old nature was on the cross. Paul makes that very plain in Romans 6. But once this is done in reality, it is done forever. I could not run into this. I intended to do it, but oh, the cost. I wept for days. I lost seven pounds in weight just because I saw what he was offering me. How I wished I'd never seen it. One thing he reminded me of was that he had only come to take what I'd already promised the Savior. Not in part, but the whole. Since he died for me, I had died in him. And I knew that the new life was his and not mine. That had been clear in my mind for three years. So he had only come to take what was his own. I saw that only the Holy Ghost in me could live like the Savior. Everything he told me appealed to me. It was only a question of the loss there would be in doing it. I didn't give my answer in a moment, and he didn't want me to. 
It took five days to make the decision. Days which were spent alone with God. Like Isaiah, I saw the holiness of God. He said, in seeing him, I saw my own corrupt nature. It wasn't sins that I saw, but nature touched by the fall. I was corrupt to the core. I knew I had to be cleansed. I saw there was as much difference between the Holy Ghost as, and, and myself as between light and darkness. Nothing is more real to me than the process I went through for that whole week, he continued. The Holy Spirit went on dealing with me, exposing the root of my nature, which was self. And you can only get out of thing what is in its root. Sin was canceled, and it wasn't sin he was dealing with. It was self, that thing which came from the fall. He was not going to take any superficial surrender. He put his finger on each part of my self-life, and I had to decide in cold blood. He could never take a thing away until I gave my consent. Then the moment I gave it, some purging took place, and I could never touch that thing again. It was not saying I was purged and the thing still having a hold on me. No, it was a breaking and the Holy Ghost taking control. Day by day, the dealing went on. He was coming in as God, and I had lived as a man. And what is permissible to an ordinary man, he told me, will not be permissible to you. The land, this land and rod experience was the crisis, which was followed by the process of sanctification during which the Holy Spirit, on the basis of his initial surrender, step by step, replaced his self-nature with his own divine nature. First, there was the love of money, that root of evil, which had formerly taken Reese to America. The Lord told him he was to take out of his nature all taste for money and any ambition for the ownership of money. I had to consider what that meant, Reese said. Money would be no more to me than it was to John the Baptist or to the Savior. To an extent, this was dealt with in my new birth, but now the Holy Ghost was getting at the root. The dealings on that lasted a whole day, and by the evening, his attitude towards money had entirely changed. Then there was the fact that he would never have had the right to a choice in making a home. I saw I could never give my life to another person to live to that one alone. Could the Savior have given his life and attention to one person instead of to a lost world? Neither could the Holy Ghost. He took plenty of time to show me exactly what it would mean. The life he would live would be for the world. Was I willing for that? Among other things that were, to be, that were dealt with was ambition. How could he have any if the Holy Ghost came in? The way the Lord showed it to him was like this. Supposing he had a mission in a town and another mission to open in the same place. If there was jealousy between the two and it was better for the town only to have one, then it would be his which would have to go. Or suppose that he and another man should apply for the same job. He would have to let the other have it. Or if he were earning 12 shillings a day and another man with a family was earning much less, the Spirit could tell him to give his job to that man. He saw the Holy Ghost in ways like that, taking the place of the other and suffering instead of him. Yes, he was willing for that. On the fifth day, his reputation was touched. As he was thinking of men of the Bible who were full of the Holy Ghost, and particularly John the Baptist, the Lord said to him, Then I may live through you the kind of life I lived through him. A Nazarite, Nazarite clothed in camel's hair, living in a desert. Even in this, or what might be its modern equivalent, a real decision had to be made. If I live my life in you, and that is the kind of life I choose, you can't stop me, was the Lord's word on it. As the Savior was despised, he must be willing to be the same. By Friday night, each point had been faced. He knew exactly what he was offered. The choice between temporal and eternal gain. The Spirit summed the issue up for him. On no account will I allow you to cherish a single thought of self. And the life I live in you will be 100% for others. You will never be able to save yourself any more than the Savior could when he was on earth. Now are you willing? Reese was to give a final answer. That night, a friend said to him, If some of us come over after the meeting, will you tell us of your position in Christ? At once, the Spirit challenged him. How can you do that? Have you seen the position of the overcomers? But you have not entered in. I have been dealing with you for five days. 
You must give me your decision by 6 o'clock tonight, and remember, your will must go. On no account will I allow you to bring in a cross current. Where I send you, you will go. What I say to you, you will do. It was the final battle on the will. I asked him for more time, Reese continued, but he said, you will not have a minute after 6 o'clock. When I heard that, it was exactly as if a wild beast was roused in me. You gave me a free will, I answered, and now you force me to give it up? I do not force you, he replied. But for three years, have you not been saying that you were not your own and that you wanted to give your life back to the Savior as completely as he gave his for you? I climbed down in a second. The way I had said it was an insult to the Trinity. I am sorry, I told him. I didn't mean what I said. You were not forced to give up your will, he said, but at six o'clock I will take your decision, and after that you will never get another chance. It was my last offer, my last chance. I saw that throne and all my future for eternity going. I said, please forgive me. I want to do it. Once more the question came, are you willing? It was ten minutes to six. I wanted to do it, but I could not. Your mind is keen when you are tested. In a flash it came to me. How can self be willing to give up self? Five to six came. I was afraid of those last five minutes. I could count the ticks of the clock. And the spirit spoke again. If you can't be willing, would you, be, would you like me to help you? Are you willing to be made willing? Take care, the enemy whispered. When a stronger person than yourself is on the other side, to be willing... To be made willing is just the same as to be willing. As I was thinking upon that point, I looked at the clock. It was one minute to six. I bowed my head and said, Lord, I'm willing. Within an hour, the third person of the Godhead had come in. He gave Reese that word in Hebrews 10, 19, having therefore boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Immediately, said Reese, I was transported into another realm, within that sacred veil where the Father, the Savior, and the Holy Ghost live. There I heard God speaking to me, and I have lived there ever since. When the Holy Ghost enters, he comes in to abide forever. To the blood be the glory. How I adored the grace of God. It is God who goes so far as to give us repentance. It was God who helped me to give up my will. There were some things he had asked during the week that I was able to give because I was the master of them. But when, I asked me, when he asked me to give up myself and my will, I found I could not until he pulled me through. An eyewitness tells us that no words can describe the little meeting in the house that night. The glory of God came down, restarted the chorus, there's power in the blood, and they could stop, couldn't stop singing for two hours. Then from 9 p.m. to 2.30 a.m., it was nothing but the Holy Ghost speaking things I never dreamed of and, ex- and exalting the Savior. When he awoke next morning, he said, I realized that the Holy Ghost had come in to abide forever. The feeling I had was that he brought me to the banqueting house and his banner over me was love. It is impossible to describe the flood of joy that followed. Reese Howells was not a person who was given to public speaking. He was naturally quiet and retiring, but when the Holy Ghost entered, he loosed his tongue and brought his own boldness in. There was a praise meeting that morning in the convention tent with about a thousand present, including some 200 ministers. The first person Reese saw there was his own minister, and if anything could have stopped him speaking, it was the fact of his presence. But during the meeting, Reese stood up and told them clearly and calmly that he was calling them to be witnesses, that the Holy Ghost, who had entered the apostles on the day of Pentecost, had entered him and would produce similar results. So as Nick said, I'm sure the rest of the book is good, but I'm stuck in chapter 5. Why would someone be stuck in chapter 5? If you know what God is asking of you, you can't just move on until you reckon with what that request is. That chapter has the potential to cause God to sound a little different than you're used to experiencing God. Because we 
desire to have our God be nothing but hugs and kisses. But I want you to realize that your God has an agenda on this earth, and he shed blood to accomplish that agenda. And if this God who is willing to take a whip and come into the temple of God and turn over money tables, do you not think that his nature is the same then as it is today? And do you not know that you are the temple of the living God? And if there is anything in your life that has roused itself to defy his position in your life, would you blame your God for turning over that table? God will deal with you gently. He always has me. But there are moments when he will lay it down and he'll lay it straight. It's time. No more playing. You know. I've made it clear to you. I've revealed it to you. You believe. He brought the Israelites to the the River Jordan. They were standing in Kadesh Barnea. He said, take the land. And they said, we don't know that we can pull this off. They measured it from their own strength. They didn't have what it took. They didn't believe their God that he was able The question for you is, do you believe your God that he is able? What do you believe? Do you believe your experience? Do you believe the messages of the modern church today? Or do you believe the word of God? What the word of God promises, what the word of God says the cross was good for, I say we remove all experience, we remove all mutterings around us, and we say, I believe you. There were 12 spies that came back from the land of promise. Ten of them said, this is what we saw, it's a good land. But God isn't able to pull this off. You know what the modern church has done for us? There's two voices in the church that say, no, let's keep going. But there's ten that are coming back and saying, you know what, it's a good land. All these wonderful things in the Bible, they're good. You know, it's wonderful to see what happened, you know, to the apostles and to see all these wonderful things. But our God doesn't do these things today. I would challenge anyone to make a true biblical argument based on the principles of how canon forms and the eternity of the word of God to be able to make a case for the fact that what God is in the past is any different than what God is today. And the purpose and the agenda of the cross has altered. And that he isn't still after his bride. And that he doesn't know full well that the only way for the church to be the church triumphant is we need all that he is in all of us. I don't know how we could redefine it any other way. You try and pull off triumphant Christianity out of human willpower. Well, we have the full canon. You know, we have all 66 books. Isn't that enough for us? You build your life on 66 books. I want to build my life on 66 books and the God that is inside those books and that inspired those books and promises to dwell in me. There's a difference between the two. I don't want head knowledge about God. I need to be overtaken by God. And so do you. The church of Jesus Christ is his temple. We're his house. And he dwells in the house of God. Like cloud and fire, he sits on his throne. The ark of the covenant rests in the most holy place. His very power is resident within his church. Take it. Go after it. Not for your sake, for his sake. For his glory. He purchased it on the cross for you. Now go after it. I'm going to go through each of these scriptures in Ephesians. First one, all spiritual blessings. I want you to focus on the word all. All spiritual blessings. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in Eparanios in Christ. These blessings 
are in his throne room. They're in that heavenly place. He purchased it, and it's there. And he says, do you want it? Enter me. You find yourself enveloped in my life, clothe yourself in this robe of righteousness, come after it. Faith is your access. You believe. You take it by faith. You reckon it is so. It's an accounting term, meaning it's a factual adding of something to your ledger. God said it. It's good for me because he can't lie. Take it. Now look at the list that follows Ephesians 1.3. The list of what all, in the context of all spiritual blessings. Then look at what Paul begins to enunciate. You are chosen. Do you believe it? If you don't believe it, it's not real to you. Faith is what accesses these things. Now as you look at this list, I want you to ask yourself, what have you believed in? Do you believe what God says happened at that cross? And do you believe and understand what took place through his resurrection and through his exaltation? He sits at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly place. Do you understand what this means? This means that these things are made available to the church of Jesus Christ. And this isn't my list. This is straight out of Ephesians. You are chosen. You are accepted. You are made holy. You are made blameless. You are adopted as children. You are redeemed and forgiven. You are given all wisdom and prudence. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit and a partaker of the mystery. Now the mystery in Paul's writings is understood as Christ in us. The Spirit of God actually entering in. This is all spiritual blessing. This isn't just some bonus Christianity. This is Christianity. The power of the heavenly place. This is the next verse in Ephesians. Now, I'm giving you a little more context on this one, okay? And so I'm going to give you the, 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 the lead-in verses to it. Because, uh, let me show you the, the end here. The end is that we are raised, when he raised him up from the dead and set him at his own right hand in Eperanios, okay? That's the end. But let's look at what leads into this. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what is the riches of his glory of his inheritance in the saints. This is epic language. Paul is not diminishing the gospel, saying, you know what? You know, it's good, and it will make you feel better. You know, you're going to be miserable in this life. But sort of while you're going through this misery on earth, at least you can have a good attitude because you can know that you have eternal life with Jesus when you die. Are you seeing that here? Where does that come from? I'd like someone to give me a chapter or verse of that mentality. It doesn't exist in Scripture. This is what exists in Scripture. It is the triumphant voice of truth. That you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward. Meaning, it's a power, it's an exceeding great power, and it is directed towards us. According to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in Eperanios. Jesus was brought up. He was exalted. Don't touch me. I still have not been glorified yet, he said. It's very strange. Until he could go to be with the Father. When he went, he says, it's better that I go. It's better that I go to be with the Father. What's he doing with the Father? He's sitting at his right hand. He's sitting at his right hand. 
There's a position of authority. The right arm of God is the arm of strength and authority. And Jesus has the strength and the authority of the Father. It is better that I go because he will send forth to you the parakletos, the helper, the spirit of God. He will send him forth. This is what the church needs. It was more than forgiveness that the cross was for. The forgiveness was to get us into the throne room, into the heavenly place in the first place. As William Law says, the purchase of the cross wasn't merely forgiveness. It was Pentecost. It was the impartation of God. We cannot imitate Jesus Christ. Try it, you will fail. To imitate, you need the impartation. You need God himself living in you. Do you understand what that means? This isn't just some influence over your life to convict you when you steal a cookie. This is your life forsaken, given over to God, and it is no longer your will. It is his that will be done. Jesus modeled it to perfection. And God says, Calvary. And Jesus felt the whole weight of it. And he says, not not my will, but thine. God has a commission for your life. And it's not the easy way of living. It's not going to stroke self. It's not going to lead to great applause by the congregation of culture. It'll lead to your death. I fully expect to die a martyr, for instance. This isn't a bad thing. I love my life. I understand chapter 5. I understand it. God has bent me through chapter 5. I understand what it means to be handed over to God. And I understand you should have seen me as I was doing it. Dear God, make me willing. I know what God's asking. I can't tell you what battle there is. We fight. It's like, okay, it's God. God's asking me, well, how can I resist God? And we do. The whole while he's asking, it's like, I'm scared about this. And then we'd go through elaborate means to find loopholes. It's like, well, you know, I'll give you this part of my life, but keep this portion. God says, I need the whole thing. I want to give you life. I want to give you life abundant. I've given you the secret to it. You out of the way so that I have room to come in. There's only room inside of you for one master. Let me be that king. Let me be that Lord. Raised up together. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power? That's the, is that the same scripture? It is. Hmm. Well, I'll read it to you here. Raised up together, and hath raised us up together, and made us to sit together in Epiranios in Christ Jesus. We are raised up together. This is very similar language to Romans 6, where it says, when Christ died, we died in him. We're like, what? I don't feel like I died 2,000 years ago. Are you supposed to feel something? You reckon it is true, he says. Do you realize that you died with him? That your old man was dealt with. All that problem, everything that is obstructing the forward movement of Christ in your life was dealt with. You need to reckon it as so. Take it as fact. Don't wait till you experience it. As I've, I've said over the past weeks, if I created a banquet in the back room and I came to you and I said, hey, look, I made a banquet for you. And then I come back in a few minutes later and you're still sitting in here. What, what, why are you still here? They say, well, I don't smell it and I don't see it. Well, could you take me at my word? When I say that I made a banquet for you, I mean it. So you get up and start walking towards it. And then guess what? As you continue to walk, what will happen to your senses? You'll begin to taste and see. 
you'll begin to realize that I was telling the truth. You take God at his word. When he says that he has a promise for you, when he says that he's done it, you stand up and you say, I believe it. Everyone else could be sitting. You go, I believe it. And you start walking. And pretty soon your experience will begin to match up with it. And pretty soon you'll begin to realize the old man inside of you, that one part of you that was all self, all about you, no longer has the voice it did. Now the voice of Christ is reigning within you. And what he wants to accomplish in and through your life can accomplish now. It can happen. We are raised up together to sit with him in heavenly places. Just as we died in him 2,000 years ago. So we were risen to life in him. And there was a newness of life in him. And guess what? Where did he go? He went up and was exalted to the right hand of the Father. He was glorified. And we too are glorified in him. And we are seated with him in heavenly places. Where do you sit? Well, I sit with uh, Jesus in heavenly places. Yeah, that's not going to translate very well. It's a spiritual position. And you reckon it is true. In other words, like your old, old man died. Well, what does that mean? It's a spiritual position. And so you take your spiritual position. You realize that being in Christ affords you the opportunity to enter into the heavenly place. And then when you're in the heavenly place, he fills you with himself. And he seats you at that right hand of authority and power. And everything that is vested in the mighty name of Jesus Christ is given to you. What do I do with this? You go into this world and you proclaim the good news of the gospel. And you fear nothing. You set back for nothing. You are immovable in this earth. You march forward and you take the gates of hell off its hinges and carry them off. You are the lamb that is sent in among wolves. And you will defy all the wolves and they will not be able to stop my army of lambs. And in the process, we mock the enemy. We prove that he is powerless because he can't even stop lambs. These are no mere lambs. These are lambs filled with the almighty spirit of God. That just happens to be God's great sense of humor. That they might know. To the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in Eperanios might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. All throughout scripture, when David faces Goliath, he says, the reason God will do this today the reason he will feed your carcasses to the birds, the reason all the Philistines will be plundered and destroyed is that all the earth may know, that Israel will know. We have this theme throughout Scripture that God rises up to vanquish an enemy. Why? Why would he do this? That they may know. That all the heavens and all the earth may know that he is the God. When Job, when Satan stood before Job... I'm sorry, Satan stood before God and accused God and says, your people only serve you out of lust because you give them what they ask for. You always take care of them. You put a hedge about them. I can't even harass them. He says, if you remove that hedge, you'd find out. The whole world would know. This is what Satan's saying. The whole world would know. The whole universe would know. The heavenlies would know that your people are only serving you because they're automatons. You create the situation for them. You give them no free will. And as long as you protect them like that, of course they'll worship you. Have you considered my servant Job? The test came. The gauntlet was thrown. And all the heavenlies knew. 
When everything was stripped of Job, and even his wife says, curse God and die, he falls to his knees, bows prostrate, and worships the Lord. What were the heavenlies doing in that moment? Ah, they knew. They knew that God's people serve them because they love him and they trust him. Though he slay us, we trust him. That is the believer that they may know. This is what the church is supposed to demonstrate. Because that accuser is still throwing out these lies about our God. Throughout the universe, he's throwing them out. He's a constant voice of diminishment of the glory of God. And the church rises up and wipes the spit from God's face. And we say, we trust him. That the world may know we take our position in the heavenly realms and we will demonstrate on this earth who our God is. He reigns in the lives of his people. And we give him place within us because we love him. Not because we're forced to, but because we love him. This is uh, the scene at Mount Carmel. Elijah stands before all the prophets of Baal, which was around 450. All the nation of Israel is surrounded. Listen to the terminology that is given in this situation. All the prophets of Baal are tested against Jehovah God. One prophet standing up in his generation. Why? That they may know. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel and that I am thy servant and that I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God and that thou hast turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, he is the God. The Lord, he is the God. Okay, now many of you have heard that because you might have heard it growing up. Take a fresh look at it. That they may know the church of Jesus Christ is consumed in the fire of God. All of it is licked up. It is all lapped up. All self is removed. All flesh is diminished. That they may know. And the world can behold the burning bushes of God that house the flame of God yet are not consumed. And that they would say, the Lord, he is the God. The Lord, he is the God. You need that fire from heaven. You need something beyond yourself and your own commitments. You need the living God to inhabit your being. And if you don't have it yet, you go after it. You say, God, what what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? I need my God to receive glory. You lay your life open before your God, and you say, bring me to chapter 5. Whatever you must do, bring me to chapter 5. I don't want to live in chapter 4. I don't want to skip over it to chapter 6. I need chapter 5. I need chapter 5 to be recognized within me. And you can quote with Nick. The rest of the book may be very good, but I'm still stuck here. And until I get through it, until I understand it, I'm not ready for chapter 6. Dear God, may this be realized in my life. At the end of Ephesians 3... After the revelation of what the church is supposed to demonstrate to the world, that they may know. In the heavenly place, they may know that he is the God. Then it says this, the mystery. 
that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the depth and the height and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Whatever is housed in that passage, we need it back in the church. All of it. The fullness of God starts with us as individuals and then we come together as a corporate body as individuals we need to be bent you're not responsible for the person next to you you're responsible to walk through chapter 5 personally and then as as you take the plank out of your own eye you'll be able to see more clearly to help others walk through chapter 5 that's how the body of Christ is built it's people dealing with this and allowing the gospel to become personalized to their individual existence for all of Ephesians 1 through 3 to be ours. And then we labor that the world may know to see the church of Jesus Christ built up to reveal the manifold wisdom of God to the heavenlies. That in the heavenly place, they would know. That in this earth and all throughout this earth, they would know. One of my desires is that the church of Jesus Christ would know. What we have in our Savior. Who he is. That he would be lifted beyond just the guy who coddles sheep and children. I love the fact that our God is tender and he is a shepherd. But that they may know that he is the same God that brought fire down on the sacrifice and lapped up it all. That he is the consuming fire of Almighty God. And he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And all of his qualities, all the elements of his person, are always joined together in his person. He never diminishes one or cuts off one so we can emphasize another. He is all of these things all the time. And we cherish that fact. We tremble before the living God, and that's what's known as the fear of God. Because he is almighty, he is perfect, he is pure, he is righteous, he is blazing holiness, he is holy, holy, holy. And yet he invites us near. And we tremble as we enter this heavenly place. We tremble as we enter. And he brings us in, not just as doorkeepers of the heavenly place, but as children. And he longs for us as children. He speaks to us as children. He is gentle with us as children, but he also disciplines us as children. And he is a vine dresser and he prunes us as a good vine dresser does because he is interested that this world may know it is about his glory and he will do whatever it takes in you and in me and in the church at large today to get that glory. Is not the lamb that was slain worthy to receive the reward of his suffering? The church of Jesus Christ says, by life or by death, yes.